This is State of Water. This is State of this Water. This is State of Water. This is State of Water. State of Water coming at you right now. State of Water, a podcast focusing on clean water issues and their relationship to policy, equity, community, and climate. Featuring captivating interviews with Michiganders from many walks of life, State of Water is the official podcast of the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan, a program of the nonprofit organization Title Track. Hey, this is Jenny from Title Track. If you resonate with what you're about to hear, put those feelings into action. Take the first step toward getting involved by going to titletrackmichigan.org slash contact to sign up for our mailing list. Welcome back, everybody. We're featuring more brand new music for the movement this week, as well as an amazing interview. Amber Hassan is a brilliant artistic force of nature. Her work with poetry, music, herbalism, and activism focuses on bringing light to dark places and situations while also helping others to find and use their voices as a tool of empowerment. Amber is a hip-hop artist, a member of the Earthwork Music Collective, owner of a natural product line called Mama's Healing Hands, co-founder of the Sister Tour Artist Collective, and host of the Loudmouth Ghetto Girl podcast. Backed by a fellowship from PolicyLink's Water Equity and Climate Resilience Caucus, Amber and Seth Bernard collaborated on a new track called Water Song. The song, featuring We the People of Detroit President Monica Lewis Patrick and produced with help from The Lasso, is a genre-defying call to action for environmental justice. Amber caught up with dear friend and collaborator Seth Bernard. We hope you enjoy their amazing conversation as well as a premiere of the new track, Water Song. Here's Seth Bernard. Let's do it. All right. All right. All right, Amber, great to see you. Great to see you as well. How have you been, Seth? You know, I've been missing you and your family. We have been missing you guys as well. And we had such a good run there at the farm with you guys staying and our kids playing and collaborating with music. It was so wonderful this summer. Thank you for that. Breakfast is not the same without, you know, (laughs) without you guys and the peacocks and, and everything. So hopefully soon, hopefully we will reunite soon. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for making some time today to talk about water song and to talk about water. Mm -hmm. So for our listeners out there, we had the honor of uh, receiving this fellowship from PolicyLink through the Water Equity and Climate Resilience Arts and Culture Working Group uh, to create a work of art that is about water and is about a water affordability. And so Amber and I got to collaborate 
on the cedar stage at Earthwork Farm, over to the farmhouse porch at Earthwork Farm, kind of just diving into this creative process. And we invited our friend Monica Lewis-Patrick, who's been on the podcast before, the president of We the People of Detroit, known as the water warrior in Detroit, a champion of water affordability and environmental justice. And so we sampled some of Monica's actual speeches from Earthwork Detroit 2019. Amber, you did this beautiful spoken word part. Uh, We worked with the lasso to create the music, recorded it on the farm uh, with with a couple of your kiddos there, kind of co-producing. And so I'm just curious. We're going to play the song, but before we tee it up, anything you want to say to the listeners before they drink it in? I just want to say it all just kind of happened very organically. And I think that's what um, is so beautiful about the the end product is that none of it was contrived. None of it was, you know, planned the way that it happened. It just by circumstance, you know, kind of the lasso being there and, um, you know, it just kind of unfolded into a beautiful project. And I think that's what uh, makes it so powerful is that it wasn't um, it wasn't scheduled to be this way. It had no format. It was just kind of like, let's see what comes up. And and it was a very, very powerful and meaningful piece. Mm, awesome. Well, with that, here is a premiere on the State of Water podcast of our song, Water Song. Check it out.
Boy, boy, This is Alright, you heard it here, Water Song. The song takes me into the space of just like right after sundown in this wood cabin with the wood stove and candles lit, um, kind of getting creative. I got to play synth. We're cooking dinner. Yep, yep. <laughs> I got to play synth bass, which is a rare treat for me. And um, yeah. yeah, like you said, very organic, very collaborative. All the pieces fit. You know, when we decided to grab that piece of Monica's speech, it really fit right into the beginning of the song and went yeah. into the chorus, which was Monica's suggestion. So can you like talk about some of the inspiration from your spoken word? After living through the Flint water crisis and after dealing with, you know, living in Puerto Rico um, and being there after Hurricane Maria for a month, just getting to see how big of an issue water can be when there isn't access to it. So being able to just tap into that and just touch on the fact that we treat water as if it owes us something, mm. as if it needs us when it, you know, ultimately, you know, water will still be here. We'll be long gone. If we pollute the water, the water will still be here polluted and will eventually, you know, cleanse itself. It will eventually over time become back usable, but we will be gone because we can't sustain ourselves without clean water. And so I think, you know, we we fool ourselves into thinking that we are the powerful one in the relationship mm. um, when we're not. And we should be every day being thankful that, you know, we still have a water supply that is usable. Yeah. It's such a it's such a basic necessity it is the most essential element in our lives and yet exactly we act like we can create some economy that defiles it and exploits it and that that's going to work out for us somehow but truly yeah. yeah so truly like what does that gratitude look like for you especially having endured the flint water crisis what does the gratitude for water look like for you so, I mean, even small things like today, I was cooking and I had the water running while I was doing something. It reminded myself to just cut the water off. Like, you know, even if it's when I'm brushing my teeth, I remind myself to cut the water off. Um, just small things like that are ways that we can show gratitude all the time. Mm -hmm. um, making sure that I'm not uh, adding to the issue. So trying to... Um, make my carbon footprint as small as possible trying to even just with everyday activities and i mean even going past that you know going i don't know for me um and even scientifically they show it like going to sit by water just going to sit by water can change your mood can change your mental health can change your emotional health um, mm -hmm. And so just going there to show gratitude. And if I go to the water and I see that, like, mm -hmm. the bank of the water where I'm at is, like, cluttered with trash, clean that up. Yeah. Um, You know, 
speak out for people to have access to clean, healthy drinking water, Um, you know, and use the skills that I have, whatever they may be, whether it be my art, whether it be um, my ability to, you know, communicate or what have you, use those skills to be able to advocate for communities and for people who aren't able to advocate for themselves in situations where they don't have access to clean water. Yeah, absolutely. You do that so beautifully and powerfully with your art. And we first met at this water summit. It was the statewide water summit in Flint. I think it was in 2018. I think it was 2018. Yes. Yeah. And it was uh, right at the beginning of the clean water campaign. And it was, to me, it was, it was really heartening to start to see our state's water movement become truly justice centered. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that is something that me as a white person from a white majority community in Northern Michigan hasn't always been the case. And people up here, we have water issues, but it's almost like you can go to a buffet and choose what kind of activism you want to partake in. Do I want to work on line five? Do I want to support my local watershed? Is it a different mm-hmm. river or stream? Is it just climate change? And what had been happening in Flint and Detroit, what's happening now in Benton Harbor, these are environmental justice. This is environmental racism. And it's it's where communities are facing human rights violations that are life and death. And it's not a matter of choosing activism, it's activism as a matter of life and death. And so these things happen and it felt like it took something as extreme as the Flint water crisis for a lot of folks in the movement to wake up to the reality of this needing to have been a justice-centered movement the whole time. And the presence of environmental justice has always been strong in Flint. It's been strong in Detroit historically. And so some some of us from white majority communities, we have come to understand the importance of this and the necessity of it. And I think that the movement now for clean water in Michigan is stronger because of it. In some ways, it's stronger than it's ever been. And you have strong indigenous leadership. You have this solidarity that we see between places like Flint, Detroit, and Benton Harbor and indigenous-led movements around Line 5. You know, you were there for the Water is Life Festival. A lot of activists um, in Detroit and Flint came up for that. So we're seeing this sense of solidarity build. And I'm curious to you, like, what it feels like from your perspective, like what you see as positives and what you see as what still needs to happen for there to be like true solidarity. Growing up when you, you know, when you would think of an an environmentalist, um, you always thought of like some, uh, you know, hippie white person. That's just, you know, that's, that's what you get. That's the stereotype. And so, there was really no space made for black people to be environmentalists or for, you know, Latino people to be environmentalists or indigenous people. Um, people expect them to be environmentalists or environmentally, you know, aware, which is a stereotype within itself, because you have a lot of urban indigenous people who aren't as, you know, as 
um, culturally connected or not as connected to the environment or what have you. So, you know, a lot of those stereotypes, I think, come into play when when we talk about this progression. And once it was like, hey, this is not just protecting um some watershed in northern Michigan or, you know, a habitat for some birds or a habitat for some fish. This is about economics. This is about race. This is about people's lives. This is about, you know, the health of a community and communities for the next um, hundred years, honestly, because you're dealing with people who could be having reproductive issues. You know, you, you have so many things tied in here. So like you said earlier, it's kind of like activism by um, by default. If you live in these communities, you become an activist. Um, and there's really no way around it. There's really nothing you can do to um, escape that. And so you do, you decide on what level you are an activist and on what level you, you know, you're going to do work, even if it's just, hey, I'm when I go get water, I take water to my neighbor. That's activism right there. Mm-hmm. Um, because the root of activism is act and, and you know, which is to, to do something to move. And that is what that is. And so by default, we are also then forced to connect it's horrible that through tragedy is, you know, a, a great human connector. Mm-hmm. But um, through tragedy, it shows how resilient people are. And it goes back to something that is probably very primitive within humans that is innate in us to preserve our community. Because without the community, none of us will be successful individually. So there's that, you know, that instinct almost that we don't even think about that kicks in that hey when you go to get water you like my neighbor needs water too or when you go do this and i think that most humans have this that they're not even aware of they just do it um and that's what started to happen and so i think that at the same time you had these social movements going on like black lives matter and um, you know, the hate crimes with Asian Americans and, um, you know, the the immigration issues that we have and the, the border issues that we're having. And so all of that is going on at the same time mm-hmm. as these environmental issues. And so I think white communities had to see that these things were you know, systematically connected. And so I think with um, with things like the, the racial justice group that Title Track has and, you know, and things like that where white people are stepping up and saying, okay, there's an issue. We have to do something on, on this side. Mm-hmm. I think once that started happening, people of color, we always are ready to come to the table. You know, as as groups, we have always been willing to come to the table, but it's like, we're not coming to the table for you to pander to us or for you to tell us how to fix our problems and not owning anything and not saying, hey, this is, you know, we contributed to this in this way and this is how we can help fix it. And so 
we don't want people coming into communities and saying, hey, here are some donations or here is what we think your community needs. Yeah. It's like, you know, how do we collaborate so that you can get what you think that you need, what you feel you need, what you see that you need? And so once those things started happening and once they continue to happen, I think it built and continues to build these webs of connections between people um, who stay connected because they have so many intersections. So mm -hmm. like we connect on the on the um, sense of um, of racial justice and of environmental um you know, environmental activism and also music. And so, you know, and mm -hmm. also as parents and also we have, you know, basketball, like we have these different intersections that we be, we have already with people. And once we connect and we realize we have these, all these little webs that connect us to people, we stay connected. Yeah. And so if I'm doing something else in the future and it's something that me and you have connected on, I will reach out and say, hey, Seth, this is what I'm involved in. Or, you know, if I meet somebody else who's doing some work that you're doing, I'll pass that information on because we've mm -hmm. formed these relationships. And so I think it all comes down to that. It all comes down to relationships and really cultivating them and um and pouring into them and, and you know, watering and, and doing that work. And with those relationships, we are able to do amazing things. We're able to do work like we created that, you know, that song with Monica not even being there. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's like, hey, this would be great right there you know, let's pull up and see if we can get a recording of that. And, you know, so just having those connections to where you could send her a text or call her and be like, hey, hi, what do you feel about us using this? And her be trusting you yeah. enough to say, hey, I know that if you use my words, you're going to use them in a thoughtful way and you're not going to misrepresent me. So, yeah, I think that that is what these tragic situations have birthed. That's mm. what has has come out of that. And I mean, it's compost, you know what I'm saying? Mm. It's it's the, it's the trash, it's the garbage. But out of that can grow so much, so much beautiful and powerful work uh, if we if we keep doing what we're doing now and if we allow it. Yeah. Thank you for that. I I hear you in that also really kind of explaining the difference between how charity feels and how solidarity feels you know, from your perspective. And it's this charity idea of making a donation, kind of like almost a hierarchical thing of kind of parachuting in and seeing what we can do to fix something rather than showing up to listen and acknowledge that leadership is present already in this community and solutions are present already. And systemic oppression has been present for a long time before this particular symptom of it. And so like solidarity is more about relationships. It's about developing long-term relationships that then create this fertile ground for collaboration. The trust is there to be able to experiment, maybe use a little creativity and all of that stuff really gets the movement going. You know, that the, the creativity and the imagination and the building of trust and relationships attracts people to movements you know it, it makes movements irresistible which is what we need and so like last week dan rickabus interviewed sam cooper about her song 
and some similar themes there with like the line three movement and solidarity between line three and line five <laughs> and having indigenous voices and having musical traditions kind of co-mingling and then you have like a song like Sam's song with the video with it mm -hmm. the process itself was just a beautiful process of community building of like hey let's sample this elder Dan you play some drums Seth you fly in some guitar and your friend Theo Katzman can record it so Theo's a part of it all these people but then the song has a life of its own you know the life the life of the song travels through air it travels through time it kind of bends time and space in some ways so there's a lot of a lot of powerful elements that we get to play with as artists and the way that they can fuel movements is is like tangible while the thing is happening and then once the thing is released there's really no way to quantify all of the all of the impact that it has but we know that it does have an impact because it impacts us right like art yeah you know and so like to that end who are some people that inspired you what are some moments in your life that pointed you toward the the career as an artist that you have manifested definitely i would have to say my parents my um my dad is a writer he's a he's a poet he hasn't published anything but he is the person who just like you'll find pieces of poetry written on like receipts you know just in the car or like on envelopes and stuff that he may throw away he may never use it's just i guess it was you know sometimes how words will, will haunt you as a writer. And my mom is an attorney. And I can remember when she was in law school and she was preparing for a class where they had to do like her, their closing statements. And I can remember her um, going through the process of writing her closing statements out and, you know, rewriting and, you know, her kind of telling me what the process was because I'm asking questions. And then she, you know, like practiced her open her closing statements and stuff like in front of us. And seeing that and how she, you know, used the same skills like, you know, public speaking and stuff, but just in a different in a different arena. Um, so definitely. I would say my parents as far as that, but um when I decided like, hey, this will probably be my career, I went to a poetry slam at University of Michigan. And I had been writing since I was like eight or nine. And that was maybe like 22 when I went to this poetry slam. And this was like the first, like, you know, I had two little kids and I was like, you know, always working and all this stuff. And this was the first like time I had just really got to go, you know, out. And the feature poet that day, was Jessica Caremore. And so when she got on stage and she performed, I was like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, and I was mm. always, I never, I always was a, you know, an MC, but I never looked at it as something to do as a job. You know, I was just, I rapped. It wasn't, you know, a thing, I guess, like that. So those would be um, the influences. And I mean, there were other people that, you know, like the last poets when I was a kid, my dad, he would like ride around and listen to different music, but he would also listen to like the last poets and Gil Scott Heron. Mm. And um, so I have those influences 
as well. And then I just think too, like growing up in black church, like black preachers and, um, and the way that black preachers orate and the way that they control a crowd and the way that they, uh, evoke and, uh, an idea and like pull emotion out of people. I think, you know, just watching those things and as a kid, you know, putting, putting those pieces together, um, and, you know, adding like, you know, just the community you meet going to like art classes as a kid, going to, you know, dance or piano. I used to go to the Boys and Girls Club in Virginia, um, in South Norfolk when I was a kid the like creative arts teacher and she would like have us putting on plays and we would like do everything from like set design costume design like create the um the script and so you know just those influences and you know like this was her job and so kind of looking back you know once you get older you're like okay like this is what somebody did to sustain themselves and it shows you just how you can as an artist, if you think outside the box, you don't have to, you know, people will try to make you think that being an artist is a plan B. And it's like, that doesn't have to be a plan B, you know, at all. Yeah. So I know the answer to this question, (laughs) but your first concert. My first concert was Janet Jackson, Rhythm Nation. Um, My parents, had to be the coolest auntie and uncle ever because they took my cousin Vanessa, who was like, you know, that was my first babysitter. She was like a big sister, but she was, you know, my older cousin. They took her for her birthday um, to see Janet Jackson Rhythm Nation. So me and my little sister by default got to go as well. And I don't even know how old I was. I may have been eight. But it was amazing, like, for that to be my first concert, looking back, and, like, Janet just put so much into that concert. That was my first concert. Mm, mm. Yes. So how about a musician that you've never seen could be at, at any, any time period in the world? Who would you choose to see if you could pick one that you, one musician you've never seen? That is so difficult. It is. Um, Just whatever you're feeling in this moment. It could change tomorrow. (laughs) That is such a big one. Um, I will have to say probably Curtis Mayfield. Probably Curtis Mayfield. Wow, nice. It was like either him or Erica Badu, but I'm like, I still got a chance. I can still see her. You that's know, true. But yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's Mayfield. good to know. Yeah. Awesome. Definitely Curtis Mayfield. So what, what's in store for you in the future, Amber? Do you have anything coming, coming up, coming out that you want people to know about? Um, I have projects that are, that are um, like on board to be released i have a book with my brother um it's a book of poetry called the american nightmare and so um i think by beginning of december we should have that ready i have some poetry that i wrote when i was at the farm that i'm that i'm putting together so i have that which hopefully by the beginning of the year um i should have that how i want it 
Yeah, I kind of am just flowing, just playing it by ear, just, you know, when stuff feels good, releasing it and not trying to get too caught up on deadlines and dates and structure and stuff, just really wanting to do and create for the sake of doing and creating. And if something meaningful and substantial and shareable comes out of that, then by all means, I am ready to share with the world. But if all that comes out of that is some mad ranting that I can <laughs> look back on in five years and be like, oh my goodness, I've come so far, then uh, and that'll be that. So. Mm. And so in closing, any words, any encouraging sentiments for folks out there who are feeling like taking some steps toward activism, towards art, toward uh, maybe entering like into the movement in ways that they haven't before? Do it authentically. And when you do it, always be mindful of the people who are on the receiving end of whatever help you're offering or what whoever your allyship is to or for. Um, be mindful of their wants and needs and um, when it comes to things like, you know, taking pictures even like of the work you're doing and things like that, I know for grants and, you know, all that stuff, sometimes we have to document it in specific ways, but offer people compassion and dignity within doing that. Um, don't make people feel as if they are a a show or they are, you know, an accomplishment for you. Mm. And check on people, you know, when when you're done doing the work somewhere, um, even if there's one person that you connect with, that you can stay in touch with, even if there's a community center, if there's a church, a, you know, a mosque, a temple that you can stay connected with and you can say, hey, I'm, I'm following up. Is there anything, you know, that I can do? Is there any help, you know, need, you know, because one thing I see with that, you know, people come in when there's an initial issue and everybody is gung-ho, everybody has high energy, everybody is putting in all this work. Um, and then six months go by and everybody has disappeared. But this problem has nothing but a bunch of Band-Aids on it. Some Band-Aids not even working. Mm. And, you know, and then you're left, the community is left cleaning up band-aids and not you know really having anything having gained anything substantial so i would implore people to stay involved in some type of way you don't have to you know be on the ground somewhere for the rest of your life but you can keep a connection with at least one person in these places if you're going in and um just be mindful that you're at somebody else's house you're in somebody else's community thank you so much well, check out Amber's stuff online. A quick Google search of Amber Hassan will point you toward your podcast, your music, your books, um, the sister tour, all kinds of cool collaborative stuff that you're doing. Thank you so much for your time today, Amber. Always great to chat with you. No, thank you, Seth. Again, I miss you guys. I can't wait to see you guys soon. Me too. More, more collaborations, emergent collaborations to come. Definitely. Oh, I do have some stuff that I was working on with some stuff you sent me. So that may be coming out soon, too. Who knows? Yeah. 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 And we've got that Cedar Stage surprise set, too. 
Oh yeah, we definitely we have that. I can't wait to hear how that turns out. Yeah, yeah. So that's you, me, and Dan, who's our our, our podcaster. We did this mm-hmm. surprise set before Harvest Gathering um, in 2019, and I had all these new songs and invited you up, and you did all this improv spoken word. It was special. So that's going to go out there soon, too. It was. I can't wait. Yeah. Awesome, Amber. We'll love to tea and to the kiddos, and we'll see you soon. Yes, yeah, see you soon. All right. And my love to everyone. I will. Peace. Peace. State of Water is powered by the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan. This campaign represents an opportunity to help place clean water issues front and center by partnering with environmental organizations across the state, by educating voters, and by urging every candidate running for public office to make a strong stand on critical issues affecting Michigan's waters. Using storytelling and music events across the state to amplify the groundswell of public support for clean water issues, This campaign is driven by Michiganders from all walks of life who share a similar priority, protection of our water. Both State of Water and the Clean Water Campaign are programs of the Michigan-based nonprofit Title Track. Their mission, engaging creative practice to build resilient social ecological systems that support clean water, racial equity, and youth empowerment.